This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Katie Balls and Isabel Hardman. Isabel, I think the big story dominating the lunchtime was about the government winning its case against the Royal College of Nurses. Talk us through the story and where we're at on the strikes on the NHS. Yes, yeah, so this is it's quite a curious case, really, that was in the High Court. It was Steve Barclay taking the Royal College of Nursing to court over their planned 48-hour walkout, which was going to start, well, and still will start, actually, at 8pm on the 30th of April, and was planned to go on until 8pm on the 2nd of May. Now, the legal point that Barclay was arguing, and he'd been asked to do so by NHS employers was that actually this meant that the strike fell outside of the six-month mandate that the RCN had for strike action. And this is using the the relatively new trade union law that um, that the Conservatives passed uh, back in 2016, the Trade Union Act. So they had six months, which expired, I think, at, at midnight on the 1st of May. So the second strike day was unlawful. The RCN chose not to come to court They came to the High Court building and protested outside with placards saying who takes heroes to court and wrote a letter to the judge saying they weren't showing any disrespect to the judge. It's just that they fundamentally disagree with the Trade Union Act and it's not fair of Steve Barclay to have taken um, nurses to court uh, when actually these are the people who the public trust the most. And the judge basically dismissed that letter described the RCN as having behaved unreasonably, said he thought the letter probably had been written for a different audience, which I think is is fair. But in a, a small victory for the RCN, um, uh, disagreed with the government's demand for around £47,000 of legal costs to be paid by the RCN, said that was too high and they've only got to pay £35,000. Uh, so make of that what you will. I think that what this war has obviously become is about the trust of voters and who blames who for this very now very long running dispute over nurses paying conditions. Um, Pat Cullen who's the general secretary of the RCN came out of the high court well she didn't go into the high court stood outside the high court uh, and responded to the ruling uh, saying that uh, the government might have won their legal fight today but they had lost nurses and they had lost the public and uh, you know her point is that nurses are the most trusted profession politicians are the least trusted if you could call politics a profession and she still firmly believes that it's too much of a pendulum swing for voters to say oh no we don't trust you nurses these strikes are all your fault suddenly we think ministers are really you know totally honest and trustworthy uh, steve barclay's tactic throughout this has been to appear incredibly reasonable and to point to other unions who have voted in favour of the pay offer that has been made. Uh, his hope, I understand from, from sources in Whitehall, is that this war of attrition will eventually be something that the government, if not benefits from, at least isn't damaged by in the way that it appeared when the strikes over pay started out. I think it's interesting in a sense, obviously Unison backed that pay offer and you have Steve Barclay suggesting once again this is the final pay offer. Now of course they're not going to engage in a conversation about changing the pay offer when you have two unions still to vote on it. Yeah. Um, but if you had a situation where the two unions still to vote back the pay offer, does that put the uh, RCN in a difficult place? Because Pat Cullen of course did suggest to her members that they 
back the pay offer. They took a different view. I think as a result, you almost see uh, the leaders of the union going harder on the government because they're trying to get back in tune and prove to the members that they are listening to them. But if you have three others and the pay offer goes through, is there a place where... Well, A, strikes would be slightly less damaging because fewer people would be embarking on them. But also, uh, you know, it means that it's harder for, for one union to hold out. Um, and, and I think that is the best case scenario for the government. If, of course, we ha- end up in a situation where the ne- other two unions uh, vote against this payoff, then I think we are in this, as is what talks, you know, long-standing, difficult situation, which I think is hard even in a blame game to end too to end positively for the government if they don't move because if people cannot get appointments um, I think the governing party will always eventually take the blame and another news there's a poll out today which shows that half of Londoners think that Sadiq Khan is not doing a good job as mayor Isabel is there perhaps a sense that after seven years in City Hall the mayor has been something of an underwhelming disappointment yeah I mean it is very difficult to, to point to big things that Sadiq Khan can boast about. And I think this is partly because Boris Johnson was so good at setting up possibly entirely pointless things that you could just point at uh, and say, well, they're, you know, they're Boris bikes or, you know, those are cycle lanes, although actually that did wind a lot of people who don't like bikes up. I mean, let's not talk about his cable car because no one actually uses it. It just swings across the Thames and back again. But I think Sadiq Khan has got a different way of doing politics. He's not that into big toys in in the same way as the previous mayor was. And so that's probably uh, damaged him to a certain extent. And the problems with the Metropolitan Police, the rising salience of law and order in London and across the country, but particularly with the Metropolitan Police and Sadiq Khan's attempts as the police commissioner responsible for that force to appear as though he's the one driving reform, for instance, with the uh, the, the resignation of Cressida Dick, I think has, has really damaged him as mayor as well. Now, of course, if you speak to people around Sadiq Khan, they'll say, we don't have enough powers. Um, the fact that lots of this lies with a Tory government in Westminster is to blame if we had more levers to pull. But I think it's interesting if you look at how there is obviously a view that it has been underwhelming, yet he is going up for election again. So you could think this is an opportunity for the Tories, and you have an interesting piece on Coffee House, James, about the various runners and riders in terms of the Conservative candidate. But there was a poll a few weeks ago which has Labour of 40 points ahead in London. Yeah. Um, so as much as Sadiq Khan might be underwhelming, right now at least it's hard to see the Tories being able to capitalise too much on that. Now, obviously the Tories will talk about low-emission neighbourhoods, the fact that they can... Um, rally some votes there but I think even with and be interesting for your interest for your views on this James it's hard right now for me to imagine a candidate that's going to turn the Tories fortunes around and I think the fact there is dissatisfaction with Sadiq Khan but there's still that does pose a problem for the Tories which is if you can't take you know if you can't see as an opportunity here what is going wrong for your party brand yeah I think that Clearly, the last few years has really not helped in terms of the Conservative electoral strategy has basically been to sort of crudely win the vote outside of London, uh, to go for the towns rather than the cities and focus on issues like levelling up the Brexit vote, etc., which obviously doesn't help, I'd say, in London particularly. But more, you look at the recent history, the wider history here, this contest where it's a mix of local figures and some Westminster MPs 
is typical of the past six contests we've come to expect now this is the seventh race we've had since it was established in 2000 London Merrillty there was a lot of talk in the late 90s when this was being started of sort of celebrities of great businessmen you know Richard Branson type figures we haven't seen any of that really the only time exception was uh, Boris Johnson winning in 2008 when he was a much more popular figure than he is now uh, when the Tory party were leading in the polls against an unpopular Labour government and really I think it's a much more kind of institutional issue which is that there's such a lack of long-term planning in terms of it seems certainly CCHQ that there doesn't seem to be a kind of strategy about how to win in London over a five, ten year period. It's much more reactive. It's much more responding to what Sadiq Khan's doing in office. And so it's going to be a very, very difficult fight next time around, as shown by perhaps the lack of candidates available. And who are the candidates? Good question, yeah. Uh, so it seems likely that Paul Scully, who's been Minister for London for the last three years, is going to declare after the local elections next week. Uh, the ones who've been declared so far are Samuel Kasumu, Nick Rogers and Andrew Boff. Uh, I think the, the last two, obviously, members of the London Assembly. Andrew Boff is a, a familiar face, face in these kind of contests, a, a perennial runner and rider. Uh, and then other ones include uh, Daniel Korski, perhaps to be mentioned. It's only just started a, a London podcast. Yeah, quite a subtle... <laughs> yeah. yeah, who, who could Greater London. guess where he might be going with that podcast? The Greater London podcast. Obviously, uh, we do recommend other podcasts, but uh, only after you listen to this one. <laughs> We're talking podcasts. I mean, Rory Stewart has mused earlier this month about a possible comeback as well to frontline politics. Now, he obviously burned his bridges with the party under Boris but there is the sense perhaps that he could represent the kind of conservatism needed to win back London so there's some talk around Justine Greening as well who was a cabinet minister under the Theresa May uh, so that could be the kind of type of maybe perhaps more moderate metropolitan tourism needed to win. Thank you Katie, thank you Isabel and thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots. And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast then why not come along to our Coffee House Live coronation special event on May the 10th. Fraser Nelson, Katie Bulls and Camilla Tomney, Associate Editor of The Telegraph, will be discussing the coronation of King Charles III and what it means for the United Kingdom. The event's from 7pm at the Emmanuel Centre in London and you can book tickets at spectator.co.uk forward slash coronation.